from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, making sustainability reporting work for everyone, the road to a zero emissions vehicle future, how Intel, Adobe, IBM, and others are doing sustainability goal setting, and global aviation collides with flight shaming. We are so grounded this week on 350. It's September 6, 2019. Hope you had a great Labor Day weekend, those of you in the United States. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me this week while Heather Clancy is on vacay is Green Biz senior writer and transportation analyst, Katie Fehrenbacher. Hello, Katie. Hi, Joel. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's a busy time. Thanks for taking a little bit of time to sub in for Heather. I know you're working away on a lot of stuff that all begin with the words verge. What's going on? <laughs> Yes, it's a very busy time, crunch time for the Verge conference. I am so excited, though, about the Verge transportation program this year. We're bringing in a lot of really amazing speakers uh, looking at decarbonizing shipping, looking at commercial zero-emission vehicles, uh, looking at urban mobility, um, electric vehicle infrastructure. There are just so many fascinating topics and um I'm super stoked about this year. And we always do a summit uh, on each of the four, or at least three of the four uh, topics that are the Verge conferences, Verge Energy, Verge Transport, Verge Circular, and Verge Carbon. What's the Verge Transport Summit about? So this year we're partnering with CalStart and we are building a commercial zero emission vehicles summit looking at how to accelerate these vehicles. A lot of them are heavy duty vehicles, so trucks and buses, and how to accelerate the deployment of these vehicles in California. And we're working with the CalStart team around their global drive to zero program um, and looking at their whole beachhead strategy about how... um, uh, delivery vans, uh, school buses, transit buses are some of the first vehicles to electrify mostly. And the point is that the beachhead strategy is that those vehicles will help pave the way, so to speak, for additional kinds of vehicles? Exactly. And that they may be, um, those vehicles are uh, economic now. So the battery prices have dropped enough so that those vehicles, um, along with certain mandates that have been set in place, particularly in California, um, those vehicles are happening much more quickly. And then, you know, uh, several years down the line, the vehicles that are larger and harder to electrify are going to start to move as well. And speaking of making the future happen, this week was also the first week of preschool for your son, Corey. Oh, yes. How was that? (laughs) So cute. He, um, I took him to school. I got him a little backpack. He was super excited. We took the Muni train over there and, and he did great. So he's pretty shy. He's quiet. He's a quiet guy. Um, and so, you know, he was a little overwhelmed, but, um, he did great. He was running around, making friends. 
I got there a little bit early and they were having a snack and yeah, I'm just so excited that he is going to start to have little preschool buddies. That's nice. I was pretty shy and overwhelmed and <laughs> in the corner in my preschool days and look what happened to me. Look so. at you now. <laughs> <laughs> so there, I guess it's hope. I don't know if that's called hope or something, but whatever it is, it is. But I'm sure he's going to turn into an amazing, uh, even a more amazing kid. So that's fun. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, Fingers crossed. Well, let's uncross those fingers and, and walk on over to the Week in Review. So, Katie, we have a couple transportation stories that we're going to talk about. And the first one is the one that you wrote about flight shaming. Yes, flight shaming. So, first of all, this started in Sweden, um, in Europe, how um, more and more um, people are deciding not to fly because they are worried about carbon emissions. And so Greta Thunberg, this 16-year-old uh, climate activist, took this yacht over um, uh, from Sweden Landed in New York last week, and uh, it was a solar-powered yacht, and it really brought the attention in my mind to, you know, her decision to give up flying. And so then I kind of did a little bit of research and talked to some people, and I just really thought this issue is so complicated and complex, um, and it's it's easy to say that you want to give up flying, but in reality, it's a it's a it's a more complicated and difficult subject. But this is spreading way beyond Greta. Uh, this week, the head of the global lobby, the International Air Transport Association, said that the environmental challenges that go along with flight shaming uh, is, will probably come to other parts of the world, especially North America, and says that this uh, no reason that to believe that young people aren't going to start to react to this. And so this is actually becoming a point of concern for the airline industry which um, is is kind of cool that, the, you know, Greta and a few others, uh, starting really in Sweden, um, have created what could be a global movement. Yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, I mean, particularly when you talk to um, some big companies, they are starting to incorporate um, virtual video teleconferencing into their um, programs and making it more of a regular and accepted thing and trying to reduce air travel. I mean, IKEA is, you know, obviously a Swedish company, but IKEA in particular has um, truly tried to reduce um, emissions via their travel of their employees. So it's it's starting to become a big issue for companies and for individuals as well. Um so, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a it's an exciting movement. And, of course, the other side of the coin is that the airline industry is having a boom year right now. So this is not necessarily, you know, cutting things short. But over time, if this really takes off and, so to speak, uh, this could be something. On the other hand, this could be a short-haul flight to probably nowhere. But we'll see. be interesting to watch. So let's move over to this other story. You mentioned CalStart earlier, and John Bozell, who is the CEO of CalStart, uh, wrote a piece on the zero emissions future for vehicles and why it's approaching. And um, and so you talked a little bit about this in terms of the summit and how this beachhead strategy, but uh, CalStart has this drive to zero mission, which is uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited that we got... John to author a piece on our site. Um, 
Yeah, so so the global drive to zero program is actually having a lot of progress, um, and they convened um, a meeting earlier this year um, at the tenth Clean Energy Ministerial and Fourth uh, Mission Innovation Ministerial, um, and that's uh, in British Columbia, um, and uh, they brought together. Parts of the Canadian government to talk about committing to help transform um, the movement towards zero emission vehicles. So this isn't just electrification. This is also fuel cell vehicles, like fuel cell buses. This could be um, uh, renewable natural gas. Is which when you take gas off of uh, waste farms or water treatment plants um, and you use that in a natural gas vehicle. So. These are zero emission vehicles um, or, or low emission vehicles, um, and they are really getting a lot of movement. Um, and like I said, the beachhead strategy is something that they're using as a way to break open the larger heavy-duty trucking markets. Because the, the big issue is that, you know, battery prices have been high for a long time, so um batteries and, and other technologies have a hard time being adopted in the kind of long haul semi truck type of market. Um, and so there's some markets that are having a harder time um, going zero emissions than others. So uh, Global Drive T0 and CalStart are using these early markets to really crack open these more difficult markets um, down the line. And they're using a really aggressive strategy to try to get a majority of vehicles in these beachhead markets by I think it's 2025 and then domination um, by 2040. So it's a pretty aggressive goal. Yeah and CalStart started as the name would imply in California but what's interesting about this uh, project in fact the uh, Drive to Zero is a partnership with I think CARB the California Resources Board but it looks like they're doing work now in Canada and British Columbia in particular and also in mm -hmm. Chile um, yeah. so they, they're really starting to uh, spread spread their wings <laughs> um, and in ways that I think are, are having a much bigger impact even beyond the, the Golden State. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's some markets that we can really learn from and use as examples, like China, for example, they have a, you know, almost 500,000 electric bus fleet. Um, so clearly we need to be looking at uh, some of these other um, countries and, and cities and see what they're doing right. So let's move over to China here, which is uh, really doing something amazing. It's just the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, is, is fairly well known. This is that the project, that, that global development strategy that the Chinese government's spearheading involving infrastructure development and investments in over 150, 152 countries, uh, in Asia, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, and the Americas. And... Um, the piece we have here, which comes from Michael Holder over at Business Green in the UK, is how this initiative can make or break the Paris Agreement. I mean, he says that it, it can be easy to miss the pivotal role that developing countries have to play in maintaining the habitable climate around the planet. And, and so, obviously, this is about the, the not just the development of infrastructure that can have a, a, a climate impact, but actually how it's built. Uh, roads, railways, dams, ports, and 
and probably airports and some other things, and how you develop, say, for example, freight train services between China and Europe, or high-speed rail in Indonesia, or hydropower dams in Argentina, or things like that, uh, they're going to really determine how much we're going to be able to get to the Paris Climate Agreement goals of two degrees, let alone the one and a half degrees, which is sort of the the newer goal. Um, This is a really interesting area where uh, you know, this has been this issue of what's the role of developing countries, what's the responsibility, the burden, if you will, of developing countries in addressing the Paris uh, goals. Uh, they haven't enjoyed the level of standard of living that we have here in the developed world, and, and yet they're being affected even more so uh, in some ways just because uh, climate change affects poorer communities more so than richer ones. And and along comes China, says, we're going to help you build and become the more modern society, a lot of concrete, a lot of steel, a lot of, let's call them carbon-intensive materials and construction. Uh, this is really something to watch uh, in terms of how this, what direction this goes and how much it's developed with climate and uh, Paris commitments uh, considered. What really struck me about this piece is just, how much our societies around the world are so intertwined with um, carbon and greenhouse gas emissions. So we're talking about, you know, basic and modern um, infrastructure development, you know, bridges, roads, transportation, all these things, but that using this lens of um, uh, low carbon or decarbonized lens around this infrastructure just shows to me just how how our entire society is based on fossil fuels and and these emitting industries. Um, I just thought that was it. Really struck me when you when you talk about this uh, development of this infrastructure and how you know having a decarbonizing lens can really make such a difference with something like this. Yeah, I mean, when you think about um, uh, just the concrete impact of this, whether it's a roadway or a dam or a bridge, I mean, all of them are or buildings of any sort. Um, and uh, concrete being the incredibly intensive material, carbon intensive material that it is, uh, that's um, that's amazing. It's eight uh, percent of the world's emissions are coming from c- uh, cement production, and I love this statistic. If it were a country, the cement industry would be the third largest emitter in the world behind only China and the U.S. And so we've got to be looking at this. Uh, The development part is great. Sustainable development, of course, has been the mantra. How do we develop uh, cities and communities and and villages and other things in a way that, um, you know, we can bring people into a a quality of life that includes right livelihoods and education, health care, and everything that that we enjoy and they need. And yet we're having this potential tipping point. Uh, Guardian did a piece uh, a few months ago that says concrete is tipping us into a climate catastrophe. So that's uh, something we've got to deal with. Um, China, you know, how do we think about this? Good news or bad? Belt and Road Initiative. We'll see. Yeah. And in, t- in terms of investing, too, um, I know Green Biz is doing a lot on green financing, but just how important using that low-carbon lens is when um, tapping into financing infrastructure. Money can drive a lot of change.
One of the recent visitors to the Green Biz office was Dan Lashoff, the U.S. Director for the World Resources Institute, a veteran in environmental organizations, having spent decades with the Natural Resources Defense Council. And uh, great to have you here at uh, Green Biz. That was great to be here. We had a brown bag lunch for the Green Biz staff to talk about some of the issues that are going on around uh, uh, climate policy and transportation, carbon removal, and a number of other things. One of the things you mentioned in that uh, we didn't really get into, I'd love to hear more about, is a growing focus by WRI on sustainable food systems. What are you seeing there? Well, our flagship report, the World Resources Report this year, is on sustainable food systems. And the question is, how do you feed 10 billion people? while preserving biodiversity and also potentially having some land where you can store more carbon. Uh, And some people would look to bioenergy as a significant contribution to decarbonizing our energy system. So we wanted to look at that issue systematically. And I I think the way to think about it is we have a carbon budget. We We talk about that a lot in terms of what we need to do to keep global warming well below two degrees C, meet the Paris targets. There's also a global land budget, and land is one of the things that is definitely finite on this planet. And so you can't use the same acre of land to grow food and uh, store carbon in trees and grow bioenergy crops. So when we think about it, we we like to think about, okay, for each acre of land, uh, what's its highest and best use? And does it add up to a system where we can feed people uh, and uh, also meet our other goals. So this whole topic is is so complex and so big. You've got the climate implications. You can't really solve climate without solving agriculture. You've got uh, biodiversity, a whole bunch of equity issues, and smallholder farmers around the world. This is a, a massive, and I, that's why I like the phrase you use, the one that we've been using here, sustainable food systems, really encompasses that, food waste, so many other parts. From the kinds of issues that you're addressing, do you see this mostly as a policy fix, a technology fix, a market-based fix? What is it going to take? I'd say all of the above. Uh, it really is. There's there's definitely a technological component of this. Where we are growing food, it makes sense to try to get the most food we can in those acres uh, because that means less pressure on other land to grow food. So there's a technology component. There's a technology component to uh, putting more carbon in the, in the soil. We're looking at crops that have deeper roots or that perennials can replace annuals so that you can get more soil carbon storage as part of the food system. So there's definitely a technical component. Uh, there is a market component, and we actually have a team of behavioral scientists that are looking at how you... Uh, market plant-based alternatives uh, to meat. And we're certainly not saying everyone should become a vegan, but we're saying for both your own personal health and for the health of the planet, uh, eating less red meat, particularly less beef and lamb, uh, is very important. Uh, But how how you get people to do that is probably not by saying what I just said. (laughs) It's, you know, it comes down to like, where do you place the the vegetable alternatives on the menu? Do you, how do you describe them? And so we're looking at all those kinds of issues. 
So that's one part of the market issue, what we would here at GreenBiz would call the B2C part. But there's the B2B piece too, which is supply chains and pushing practices, carbon farming, carbon sequestration, soil enhancement, um, obviously some of the labor and, and, and human rights issues that go along with, with this uh, through, the, through the, literally the food chain, the supply chains and value chains of big food companies. Do you see that that's a place, first of all, are you playing there and what's the opportunity to intervene in that space? I don't think we're currently playing heavily in the in the big ag uh, discussions. Uh, we are certainly paying attention to some of the conservation programs in the farm bill and see ways to improve those so that we're paying farmers more to store carbon. Uh, but we have not yet, in the U.S. at least, really gotten into uh, how to reform supply chains overall. We are working on reducing food loss and waste. That's one of the key levers uh, to providing a sustainable food system. So what will we be seeing? You said this is sort of early days for this at WRI. What will we be seeing from the organization, uh, research reports, uh, other kinds of initiatives? What, what, what do you see as the, really the big opportunity for WRI here? Yeah. So we do have a, a flagship research report out, uh, the World Resources Report on a Sustainable Food System, and that lists a menu of options that are needed to uh, feed 10 billion people while preserving biodiversity and, and meeting our climate goals. So that's the, the kind of flagship piece. Uh, we're working on analysis of what are the top policy priorities in the U.S. Uh, to increase carbon sequestration in soils. How would we go about, for example, uh, promoting cover cropping, which is an option that among different things, there's competing research. That one's where the research is pretty clear that you get a, a clear carbon benefit still practiced only by a very small fraction of farmers. Um, so that's a way where you uh, are increasing soil uh, carbon sequestration without interfering with food production, which is a kind of a key um, goal. And then uh, out of the global program, uh, you'll see more on the marketing side, how to um, present non-meat alternatives in a way that's attractive to consumers. You're looking at this globally. Do you see much of the action is in or outside of the United States? Well, obviously, it's a global uh, supply chain and a global issue, so that's where uh, a lot of the action has been. But it's a key issue in the, in the U.S. And certainly, the whole question of how you revitalize rural economies is part of the decarbonization effort is, is something that's getting more attention and, and deserves more attention. Uh, it's an area that we haven't done as much work on, frankly, as I would like, but an area I'd like to get into. Lots to do on the uh, sustainable food systems menu. Dan Lashoff is the U.S. Director of the World Resources Institute. It's great to see you again. Thanks, Dan. It's great to see you. Thanks. The management consulting team McKinsey recently published an article on the value-based sustainability reporting that investors want. It discusses how investors are questioning current sustainable reporting practices and that some are calling for changes that executives and board members should be aware of. One of the authors of the report, Sarah Bernoff, joins me now from the McKinsey office in Stockholm. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hi, Joel. It's my pleasure to be here. So what did you and your co-authors set out to find out when you did this research? 
We wanted to understand to what extent sustainability reporting is helpful to investors and also what are any improvement opportunities to make sustainability reporting even more impactful and helpful. And what did you find? It sound, it seems like there is this disconnect um, that uh, increasingly big investors want more and more information, but they're not necessarily getting what they feel they need. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right saying that. On the, on the very highest level, we found uh, three things. Uh, one is that investors are increasingly conscious of the positive link between sustainability and financial performance. Uh, second is that investors also struggle to uh, make good investment decisions relying on companies' sustainability reports uh, for several reasons, which I'm sure we get the opportunity to get back to. And thirdly, uh, in our research, uh, we learned that uh, alignment of reporting standards is seen as a main way to improve this, uh, and that would be to the benefit of both companies as well as investors. Yeah, it seemed that people want to see uh, fewer standards that are more aligned. Uh, is, is there a possibility of creating one standard that would apply across uh, sectors and geographies? I think there's definitely a possibility to, to create rationalization uh, of the standards. And I think, uh, as you point out, the one striking fact uh, is that we see that more than 90% of corporates report on sustainability, but only around 14% of investors uh, fully integrate this information into their investment processes, uh, which essentially means that investors does not, do not find the reporting useful. Um, they are asking for uh, mainly three things when it comes to sustainability reporting, and this, this is what we learned uh, in our survey. Uh, one being financial materiality, that there is a focus uh, in the reporting of the metrics that actually drive value, and those will vary from business to uh, business. Uh, the second one is around consistency, that investors want to be able to compare uh, data points across their portfolios. And the third one is around reliability, where we learned that 97% of uh, investors want disclosures to be audited in order to ensure quality. One of the challenges we've seen is that uh, companies say that the capital markets don't really reward sustainability leadership. So why bother go through this whole, whole exercise uh, other than just to sort of check the box? Do you see that changing or do you see the capital markets starting to step up and, and really give leadership companies the credit they deserve? Yeah, what we do see is that the research out there shows that there is a positive link between sustainability and financial performance. Uh, in one of the largest meta-studies around, we see that there is a positive link in around 60% of the cases and uh, a negative link in only below 10% of the cases. So there is compelling evidence out there. So uh, what is needed will be uh, to create transparency on sustainability performance. And to that end, a simplified and standardized reporting is helpful. And uh, what we learn also in our survey is that two-thirds of investors are saying that increased standardization would attract more capital to sustainable investment strategies. So there's two sides of the sustainability investing uh, perspective, I think. One is has to do with risk, uh, minimizing risk, 
and the other has to do with maximizing opportunity. Where do you see the, the biggest uh, movement right now in the markets in terms of uh, the risk opportunity spectrum? Obviously, both are important. Um, I think investors have been um, mindful about the risk aspect of this for a longer time. So I think we see more activity on this side. However, what is interesting also to note is that uh, an increasing number of investors are also looking into the opportunities uh, that any uh, that the big sustainability trends will uh, will give us uh, when it comes to, for example, energy transition and disruptions in in value uh, chains. So there are definitely a set of investors that want to create an edge by leveraging those opportunities as well. So when you look at the research and the outcome, what's the one thing that needs to happen soon to change this state of affairs to better align the investors and the companies? I think the one thing that needs to change is, um, and you were asking about it, is um, a movement towards a greater rationalization so that investors and corporates and other stakeholders, including the standard setters, importantly, can agree on uh, one framework and one uh, set of metrics that, um, that can be used. Uh, and this is really what uh, stakeholders are pushing for um, as we survey them to find uh, one or at least fewer than today uh, frameworks and standards to, uh, to apply. At what level does this take place? Is there an international body that would take care of this or would it happen first, let's say, in the EU and then spread? Where, where do you see this movement to create a single standard uh, happening? That's again a great question. We believe it, it, that process would require involvement from uh, a broad set of stakeholders, including corporates, investors and standard setters, but also other stakeholders such as uh, regulators, for example. Uh, there is already a lot of activity here in the standard set setting space. We believe that there is a great opportunity for investors and corporates also to get engaged into this, to, um, to feed in what are the sustainability disclosures that matters most to them from an investor perspective, for example. And is there an organization, SASB, for example, or something uh, on your side of the Atlantic that seems to have uh, already a good beginning of this that companies should maybe get behind and, and support? I think there are multiple organizations who are, are taking initiatives here. Um, and uh, there is probably an opportunity for for some of them to uh, to get together to uh, to take lead on this to uh, to drive this to the next level. Great. Well, there's a lot of work to do here, and we'll keep tracking this as we have been for a while. Sarah Burnoff is a partner in the McKinsey office in Stockholm, Sweden. Sarah, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Last week, we said goodbye to Cyan Zhang, our summer intern who came to us from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Medill being one of the top, I'd say, three or four J schools in, in America. While she was here, she wrote a number of great pieces. Uh, one that ran this week is called Intel, Adobe, IBM, and Others on the life cycle of corporate sustainability goal setting. Before she took off to bigger and better things, I spent some time with her. I saw Anne, first of all, uh, thank you for your, your great summer here. Yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you for having me here. 
So why this piece? Why goal setting? What about that captured your interest? Um, I was, I've always been interested in corporate social responsibility um, and also environmental responsibility. Uh, when I was studying abroad in Italy, I did a case study of Nike Grind, where they use, I think, uh, old shoes and recycle them to make uh, running tracks. And I think... Uh, that was really interesting, and from them, from them, I learned something about like the circular economy, and then I just wanted to learn about the practice of other companies as well. I know Greenbiz has this great network of company executives in the Bay Area and beyond. So um, when this opportunity presents itself, that I could talk to some sustainability leaders in these companies, I was like, yes, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> so it looks like you talked to seven of them, including uh, IBM and Ingersoll Rand, Keurig, Dr Pepper, uh, City, and and a few others. So. Uh, None of those, by the way, in the Bay Area, except for Adobe uh, and Intel, I guess, but they're all over the country. Uh, what, you know, you, you summed up a number of the, uh, of, of the takeaways from that, but I guess stepping back from that, you know, you, you, what did you surprise you about this? Um, I'm actually really surprised about how much attention the businesses are paying to sustainability because, um, you know, I covered impact investing in Chicago and people were people who are talking about it are the professionals in sustainability. But through talking to these people, I realized that the top executives from the CEO, the CFO, all of them are also really concerned about this issue. Um, so yeah, that level of attention across the whole organization is really surprising to me. One of the things that happens with goal setting is that sometimes companies, and we see this a lot, companies uh, meet them ahead of schedule. So sometimes you set a, a 2025 goal, let's say, and you meet it in 2021 or 22. Then the question is, uh, you know, do we set a new uh, higher bar or do we wait or just coast for the next two or three years and then set a, a new goal? Uh, what, what did you find? Did you look into that? I actually did. That was one of the questions that I asked um, some of the, the leaders, and I think their answer was pretty unanimous. It was, um, of course, we don't coast. Uh, if we hit a bar, hit a goal earlier, that means um, maybe it wasn't ambitious enough. That success usually signals the opportunity or the space to do more and better. And what about where these goals originate from within the company? Uh, is it in the sustainability department or CSR department, or are you finding that these goals are originating from higher up the corporate chain? Um, I think it was actually embedded across the whole organization, as I've uh, written in the article. Um, of course, the sustainability teams are leading the effort. They're making the grand strategy. But, you know, the senior executives are kind of overseeing everything. And then the specific teams are in charge of specific targets. For example, a supply chain team is in charge of, you know, improving the energy efficiency of their supply chains or like the responsibility of their sourcing. So uh, it's really across the whole organization. You talked about uh, some of the different frameworks companies are using the sustainable development goals from the United Nations, the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, uh, science-based targets. Uh, that seems confusing. Are you finding that companies are, are settling in on some of these or are they still trying to figure out which of these goals or frameworks to work with? 
Um, I think having external framework is definitely helpful for companies to kind of align their efforts with industry standards, so they know they're on track. For example, this, um, but there are definitely some nuances within it. For example, the uh, UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. There's so many. There are 17 of them. They cover basically all the issues. Um, when I talked with Val Smith from City, she actually said it has been a challenge to.、Um, You know, find out the specific niche that within the SDGs that really align with the corporate strategy of City. But yeah, I think they're they're finding it really useful. And then for the TCFD, that's more like financial disclosure, and、um, you know, City again is definitely complying with that. And I'm really、um, impressed that Indersol Rand is actually complying to all three.、Um, so they're really doing a lot to、uh, kind of align them with industry standards. Well, it's a great piece, and I really appreciate you taking this on. Before I let you go, sort of, and this is the, as we said, the tail end of your ten weeks here this summer at GreenBiz. How did what you learned here this summer affect your own goals and aspirations about where you want to take your journalism career? That's a great question.、Um, I. I think I will want to stay within the environmental sustainability space, but since my background is in business and technology reporting,、um, I will want to combine those and keep digging into you know different technologies or、um, I, business innovations that can actually advance a, a clean economy. Well, Cyan, it's been a pleasure having you here this summer, and、uh, we will look forward to seeing your byline continuing to show up from time to time on Green Biz. And、uh, best of luck going forward. Yeah, thank you so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com/slash 350. You'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage: The Best of Live Interviews from GreenBiz Events. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure you check out. Our newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. It's five weekly newsletters in all. Katie's is on transportation and mobility. Comes out on Tuesdays. Mine's called Green Buzz. Comes out on Mondays. And we have others on energy, circular economy, and this convergence of technologies called Verge. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather will be back next week, and thank you, Katie, for stepping in this week. And I will be back with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.